Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloud. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode number eight, recorded on January 29th, 2019. The Cloud Pod, now with insane magic. Good evening, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you? Not bad. I'm uh, drinking a lovely uh, Glenfiddich oh, this evening. Jealous. I'm in the wrong office today. I got home too late. I missed my window to get a drink. Might have to take a might have to take a quick break. Uh, Peter goes silent quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, maybe maybe during Jonathan's cool tools, you can you can cover that out. All right. Well, we have a lot of news this week. Uh, it's been very busy. Plus, we are recording a day late, so we have a little bit of extra breaking news today. But let's start out with a follow-up. Jonathan, you had a chance to play with Lambda Layers a little bit more, and you have some updates for us. Yeah, I played with the AWS Labs um, Docker image to Lambda Layers converge a little bit, and I was going to do some benchmarking uh, between Fargate and Lambda for a couple of simple things. And as I was playing with it, I began to realize that this is never a tool you'd ever actually use you know, in Anger. Uh, I think it's all about changing the mindset of uh, the users because I never really considered Lambda layers to be, uh, you know, in parity with uh, the Docker layers. I think it's it's changed my mind. It's made me think differently about Lambda layers. And I think that's that's the purpose of the tool. It's just a, a cultural change. So, what exactly about the layers is different that we should think about if we were if you were to break it down for us so we know what uh, what should we do differently? I, I don't think you'd ever first build a Docker image and then turn it into a set of Lambda layers. I think um, because because there are other dependencies that would have to be injected into the Lambda to to make it function in an event-driven way, I think you'd always just derive both of those things from their components independently. I mean, Lambda layers definitely are not Docker layers. I think, you know, maybe last week we called them uh, a little bit, you know, we said they were using the same syntax and all that, which they are technically, but they are different. They, you know, they are additive only. They are not uh, flexible beyond certain things that they support. So it, it definitely not something I would say is a complete replacement for a Docker, um, especially in an in a application that isn't event-driven. But you know, I still think it does help people get started in the right way, and that's a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely helped me see, see Lambda layers in a, in a different light. All right, great. Well, good update. So let's uh, move on to news. Breaking news uh, before we recorded today, Microsoft uh, announced their earnings for Q4. Uh, and in after hours trading, their stock is down four percent, apparently due to signs of slowdown in Azure Cloud. And if you dig into those numbers a little bit beyond that, you see that in last quarter they had seventy-six percent uh, growth uh, in their Azure business uh, versus ninety-eight percent last year. <laughs> so I, I don't know sure this is a bad sign of the slowdown in growth in Azure versus that this is the problem of very big numbers becoming even bigger numbers, <laughs> and doubling the size of a big number is much harder. Yeah. I definitely agree with Elon Musk on the the quarter reporting burden for businesses and and being forced to report earnings like this. Uh, it's just um, clearly there's nothing wrong with with the business model of Asia or AWS or any of these hyperscalers, and perpetual growth at you know ninety eight percent growth is clearly not sustainable. So to be penalized for only having in the seventies percent growth is is uh, just crazy. Well, it's kind of meaningless. Really. I think it's extremely meaningful. I mean, what it tells us is we are in an industry that is growing so fast that people get pissed when someone only grows by 76%. Um, it's cool. It means we're right in the eye of the storm and it's fun to be here. Uh, the other thing I think is hilarious is that um, the causation uh, 
Somehow this reporter uh, did all the regression analysis apparently and figured out that this is why the stock went down. There's a hundred thousand reasons why it might have gone down four percent. Yeah, after hours is a little bit of a not a real accurate bellwether of what the stock's going to do tomorrow. But uh, it, it is interesting to see the immediate reaction is oh no, Asia missed expectations, and it, it, I don't know if that's the case. We'll see what the stock actually does tomorrow. I, I suspect that it will be uh, it won't be a massive sell-off unless this somehow becomes major news that no one understands what they're actually saying about Asia. Definitely, I mean it may not be helped by the fact they had a half-day outage of authentication for Office 365 exactly. yesterday. So many things happen. Yeah, never, never <laughs> good. Never good. <laughs> Some SRA person, I feel for you. All right, moving on to other news. So um, Travis CI was picked up by IDERA. Uh, IDERA is apparently owned by another private equity firm named TA Associates. Uh, they are a maker of several uh, SQL database management tools, as well as some other tools like TestRail, Ranarex, and Qin. Uh, and this is their sign that they're going into more of a DevOps uh, space and, and branching out. Seems like lots of these companies are, are branching out. GitHub with their actions, Microsoft purchasing GitHub for a period. I mean, it's uh, everyone's diversifying. I think it's it's, it's kind of cool. Well, I've I've heard of TestRail before. Um, you know, I've never heard of the other tools that they have, and it's a little interesting to me that Travis got picked up in this manner because you would think that this would be a natural acquisition for GitLab or for GitHub or somebody else to build out what they already have in CI/CD. You know, the number of companies that use Travis CI for open source projects because it's free for them is is pretty large and you see it quite often in github um, repos so it's definitely a change and i i'm just surprised that this is the acquisition you know company versus someone who's well known in the space you it just seems like there've been other company who would be interested in this um, but i guess all the cool kids are now moving off to circle ci and maybe travis has had to stay in the sun maybe i mean github's already placing the travis functionality with their actions which isn't ga yet but hopefully soon yeah so you're gonna buy yeah, you're going to buy Travis for one of two reasons. You already have a CI capability and you want their customers or um, you don't have a CI capability and you want one. And so it looks like the latter in this case. But is CI really the problem that I'm trying to solve with DevOps? I mean, in my mind, DevOps is more around continuous delivery. And so, you know, I don't know if this is a great entryway into the DevOps space, unless your definition of DevOps is completely flawed around release right. engineering. Uh, it was interesting to see that the CTO promises to keep it open source. Uh, and importantly, in the last report, they had over 700,000 users. So either 700,000 users just became Circle CI customers, or uh, we'll see what happens in the space over the next few months. Oh, it's like the GitHub. Oh, I can't believe Microsoft bought GitHub. They expected a huge exodus of people away. Didn't happen. Well, I think Microsoft's done a really great job preventing that from happening. And so far, what I've seen from the GitHub side is they're being much more flexible with users and much more open. And you know, I, I now have my uh, my repos hidden away that I don't want open to the world that I didn't want to pay for in the past. So I think they're making nice improvements that are winning over the developers' hearts and minds. So I, I think Microsoft's made the right call there. But uh, we'll see what happens with Travis. I assume that it's going to be about, you know, we bought this company, we want to get into DevOps, and now we need to make it make money for us. And what does that mean long-term for open source? It may not be quite the, the rosy story that GitHub was for most companies. Speaking of AWS, when I think of cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their FogOps services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. 
All right, moving along. So Google apparently uh, poured in another $3.1 million into the Wiki Foundation. Uh, they've apparently donated over $7.5 million over the last decade. Uh, and apparently as part of this deal, they also gave them access to several of Google's machine learning tools, including the uh, Custom Search API and the Cloud Vision API, which is on the GCP platform for image recognition. Uh, you know, on the surface, this sounds this sounds great. Oh, aren't Google so generous, giving all this money away to this charitable organization? But really, when it comes down to it, Google need Wikipedia because if they don't have an answer to a question, they send you to Wikipedia, and then it's Wikipedia's problem. It's the community's problem to find the content, to build the content, and to curate it. Google don't pay for that, yet they probably send millions and millions of queries Wikipedia's way every day. Without Wikipedia, Google would be nowhere near as, as good in terms of uh, customer satisfaction. Does anybody know how much 3.1 million this year is versus however much it costs to run Wikipedia. So they, they're actually, I looked this up because I was curious if they were in Google Cloud. <laughs> and they actually run in private data centers. They have three or four of them, Equinex facilities, mostly on the East Coast with, a, I think it looks like a DR site potentially on the West Coast. Um, their entire infrastructure is publicly available on the Wikimedia Foundation pages. You can see it. Um, and it's not very complicated for what it is. It's a lot of caching, a lot of CDN, I think, in front of it. So I don't think it actually costs them a whole lot of money to run the wiki uh, itself. But uh, it, it definitely it was surprising to me they weren't more in the cloud. But maybe that makes sense based on their business model. Right. I also uh, I, I had to say, compared to Google's uh, revenue, uh, $3.1 million is a rounding error. So I'm... <laughs> You know, if, if they're going to be so dependent on Wikipedia for this content, maybe they should uh, give them a little bit more. They also, in this announcement, talked about uh, something they started apparently last year in their donation last year, which was Project Tiger, um, which is their initiative to translate wiki articles to underrepresented languages like uh, some of the lesser known Indian languages and some others. Um, and so they now are also focusing on some of that with some of this AI technology to help accelerate that process. Uh, that's really interesting as well. It has a terrible acronym, though. They call it the GLOW Project, uh, which is Growing Local Language Content on Wikipedia. And that's great for those communities. And it's even better for Google because now now people who are non-native non, uh, English or other some of the popular language speakers will have something to read when they search on Google. It's, um, it's great for Google all around. I think they, 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 could have, they could have spent 100 times as much on this and still got their value for money. As the um, editor-in-chief of the Peter Rusakos Wikipedia page. Oh, God. Um, I only write that in English, though. <laughs> so how how do we exactly get it translated to Hindi Greek. or some of these other languages? Because I don't know those languages to even possibly do that. It's, it's, so there's a little bit of disconnect between the technical people who are editing these pages uh, and how they actually end up translating into these local languages. I'm a little confused on how that actually happens with this project. Um, unless it's all machine learning, but then is it as good as, you know, Babelfish or Google Translate in quality? It is kind of an interesting question. And why do it at that layer? Why why save copies of translated documents on Wikipedia taking up storage space when you can real-time translate it in a browser for free, basically? Yeah, that's a good question. All right. Well, since we reach out our end of our <laughs> knowledge on this one, we're going to move on. <laughs> so uh, Amazon announces the uh, network load balancer now supports TLS termination. Apparently, according to Colm McCarthy, it preserves source IP and sends that all the way back to the end server, which he apparently calls insane magic. And if you read through his uh, Twitter thread that he wrote on this, uh, he's pretty excited about this technology and what they're doing there. And 
And it is a nice uh, improvement to the overall NLB and something that I know surprised me that it didn't support TLS when it announced, but it also didn't support security groups. And I don't think it still supports security groups. So maybe it shouldn't be so surprising as it was to me at that. There's a bunch of different advantages for this. The source IP thing, uh, they should be really proud of because what this means is that even if you've got a route out from uh, an application server through an internet gateway, the NLB is smart enough, or the, the hyperplane is smart enough to know that this particular connection to this, or from this particular IP address, needs to be routed back through the NLB and not back through the internet gateway. So connection tracking uh, is fantastic. Uh, now it means you, you don't lose context for your customers. You can do uh, geo-based IP uh, cleverness, stuff like that. Um, this really is a good way to finally put a nail in the coffin for ELBs because I think one of the huge use cases, well, one of the reasons people stayed with ELBs after ELBs were announced was that ELB did not support TLS for non-HTTP ports. So I think this will be the, uh, you know, within how many months they'll probably start deprecating ELBs or encouraging you to, to move off that service. Well, that makes sense then, because in the announcement, they talked about uh, there is a wizard they built to move you from the classic load balancer, which is what the old ELP is called. But what if you want to know? What if you want to know if the packets are going through the NLB or not? Like, I guess, flow logs? Um, yeah, you flow logs. Or, um, I mean, if that was an interesting question, though, Peter. I mean, would you do you ever see anybody wanting to deploy a service where you could you could access it publicly, directly and through an NLB, though? Well, I mean, just like you're troubleshooting your, your architecture and you're not even sure where these packets are coming from. Is this coming through the NLB or is it hitting it directly? Um, so you have to... You well, have I mean, to if your security group is only allowing the NLB to talk to it, then that would be kind of the answer to your question. That but if you, be. Yeah, if your server is available to both the internet and to the NLB, then you'd have to look at either the VPC flow logs or you'd have to look at the packet capture on the host. Yeah, I'm not sure flow logs capture... Um, packets in between the the services that are built in the hyperplane, actually. So that's oh, that's a good question. Mm. Maybe that doesn't, but I would I would think if the traffic's crossing my VPC in any way, that I would see at least a source and destination record in the flow log. But you know, it's something we can test. We can do that pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. Right. Power make, of the cloud. Definitely yeah. make a note of that. <laughs> Go back to those tools, though. The you know the the, the wizard that helps you convert the classic ALB to to the ALB or now to the and network load balancer. I really dislike those tools. It, it's, it goes against everything we we stand for in DevOps and automation is to have the service provider come along and say, "Hey, you've deployed this stuff with your automation, but we'll just change it on the back end for you." Uh, it's just it's disastrous. So it's great to play with in the sandbox or something, but to actually use that thing on anything for real is just uh, totally. There should be a huge disclaimer. <laughs> I definitely think it's not for you and I and and Peter who are you know big Terraform users, big automation infrastructure as code people. This is, you know, this is for the people who are using cloud who are not maybe at our scale and or needs. But um, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think for the most part, this is you. You want to be in the uh, API. You want to be in the CLI doing work and update your Terraform code, update your CloudFormation code, and then you know make that change. But uh, you know, it's a good good option for people who are not as into the automation front, which unfortunately a lot of people still are. I'd love to see the percentage of uh, of infrastructure changes on Amazon that are um, affected via the uh, the console versus CLI or or API calls. Uh, I bet do you really want to know? Because I, I think do. if I knew, it would, I make me, it, would, it would make me sad. No, it'll make you happy. It'll be like, look how far ahead we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the nice thing too is that the um, you know the, this is using the S2N project, which is Amazon's open source implementation of TLS. Um, so you get all the benefits of their investment in TLS. So you won't have a heart bleed type scenario here, hopefully. 
Um, or if you do, you know, they'll have zero day patching available because Amazon owns and controls this code and they'll roll it out to their load balancers really quickly. So that's that's also a nice benefit of this service um, that you know you did not have before. Oh, open source. I thought Amazon uh, I thought Amazon never contributed to open source. What, that's right. What are you talking about? <laughs> you you stole my line. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> But like they, it's called zero day patching because they can patch all the load balancers very quickly, and and your your application service, even if they're still running a buggy version of TLS, and not exposed to the to the vulnerabilities anymore. Well, that's great. I'm super excited to see this one, uh, what people are doing with it, and and hopefully this is the end of the CLB, and we can start talking about oh yeah, the CLB like simple DB, it's it's dead. Uh, anyways, so uh, Microsoft acquired Citus Data. Uh, they're apparently a former Y Combinator company. Uh, they make a high-performance Postgres instance, and they're really focusing on scaling out your Postgres implementation for performance and scale. Uh, they say that in their marketing, they created the cloud-friendly Postgres database. Um, they have about 35 employees. Uh, terms were not disclosed in this deal, but uh, all I saw when I read this was, oh, this is their answer to Aurora. Definitely. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool because you're they're not forking Postgres, and um, they're... They're at you know they're they're simplifying the whole process of someone who starts with Postgres and then at some point needs to scale out rights and needs to you know put a sharding strategy in place and that could or a partitioning strategy and that could be you know extremely challenging to move from where you're at to that model and I think people avoid doing it and instead they just go for bigger and bigger um, instances and more and more caching and. Uh, and avoid that. And I think the longer you avoid it, the bigger you get, the harder it is to to migrate over. So it's kind of a cool way to quickly and easily go from your single instance Postgres to um, you know a, a sharding strategy and and scale out reads and writes. Yeah, reflecting on what we've been talking about regarding the open source issues with the hyperscalers, it's really good to see that they're going to offer this as a managed service enterprise download and continue to offer it as open source. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see if they still offer that managed cloud service on AWS, though. But uh, yeah, no, the on-premise piece of this and as well as the other options they have make this a really nice acquisition. It's it's very similar to the, um, on the MySQL side, you have Percona, right? And so I, it seems to me like Postgres is kind of having this uh, resurgence in the market and you, you have these companies kind of spinning up like Enterprise DB and Citus and these guys who are now trying to do the Percona play, but for Postgres. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to see this. I, I hope that uh, they are very successful inside Microsoft and that this becomes an interesting product in the future. Amazon has now jumped into the MDM space with a new product called WorkLink. Uh, which allows you to secure your on-premise websites and apps. Uh, it apparently, in my research, it supports SAML, so you can use your single sign-on provider like ADFS or Okta to access this system. It is uh, an app of some kind that runs on your phone that basically makes a VPC connection through VPN, and then you can basically, they have a content rendering concept that will deliver mobile content to your mobile device. And right now it supports iOS 12 with support for Android coming. Uh, but this looks like an interesting play into MDM, and I'm actually kind of excited to see what they might do in this space long term. I think it's a bunch of companies who are going to feel the pain from this. I remember doing some um, proof of concepts over the past few years with 
people offering reverse proxy type solutions into into VPC services, and they were expensive, and they they consumed your EC2 resources, and there were questions about uh, letting another third party have access to your VPC and deploy resources in your VPC. So, an Amazon native solution is the problem, and mobile as well. That's fantastic. Yeah, I keep trying to think if this only applies to like the enterprise, uh, large companies who are serving up their own intranet type resources, or if there's a way to, for, you know, a, a, say a, a company who has a mobile app that needs to connect to their backend infrastructure, if they could, if they could borrow this as well, or if. So based on how it works, which is, you know, it's this application you install on iOS, it connects a VPN connection, and then it takes over the DNS on your phone, and it either routes traffic based on, you know, if it's in the DNS in the fleet, or if it's in the DNS on the internet, it'll route to the internet through the cell phone modem. Um, my guess would be that if you had a client that required, you know, needed to talk to a private link endpoint, that as long as it was DNS in that group and it's in the fleet, I would assume that would connect, but it's an assumption at this point. I haven't tested that, but I, I do believe it does solve that use case. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't right now, it's probably in the roadmap. Mm. Well, this is an easy authentication and access and access control for any privately hosted application now. Anyone can deploy a directory the users in, anyone can put this in front of any service and protect it from the internet at large. And that's that's really cool. What if I have like three yeah. places I want to connect to from my mobile phone that are all on AWS and all use this app? If you put the DNS into the Worklink fleet, then I think you could route it, but it would be routed to probably only one VPN because you can't have more than one VPN running on your phone. Right. So it's really a limitation of the VPN and the networking stack after that point. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely there. Um, I know, like for in my world today, I you know, like Jira, I can't access from my iPad, but if I could set this Worklink fleet up, I could access Jira without having to get a security exception and a bunch of extra steps there. So that I, I think it's great. Um, again, I, you know, the mobile device management space is very uh, large with lots of different players. And if they, if this is just step one of a multi, uh, you know, a much larger strategy in MDM, I, I'm actually kind of excited about it. Because $5 per month um, is similar to what I saw pricing on for other um, solutions in the space, in the MDM space, so that are more full-featured. Um, so this is a little bit pricey, but it doesn't. It also includes the Worklink fleet, so it's not terrible. But um, if they could add more value for that five dollars per user, I think it becomes a really interesting story. And maybe it's finally the way they can start cracking enterprise because I, I don't feel like Chime or Workspaces has really got them into the enterprise the way they really wanted it to. And there've been a few of these new services that Amazon has released where six months later or a year later, the price comes down by like. Um, you know, by a factor of two or a factor of four, 10. I mean, it, it's possible that in a year, this is going to be a 50 cent per active user per month service. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a play against people like Okta as well. Amazon SSO was already a play against Okta. So this is, you just see them continuing to kind of consume some of these really core enterprise services like VPN, which they announced a couple of weeks ago, we talked about on the show the AWS SSO, now this service, like you can start seeing them putting the pieces together to really start going after some of these enterprise management tools and some of these really enterprise-y use cases. So uh, it's, it's great. All right, moving right along. Uh, GKE uh, on Google Cloud, of course, their Google Kubernetes cluster, now provides usage metering. 
Um, so you can now see which tenant in your Kubernetes cluster is consuming CPU or memory or disk space and what that is. Uh, these usage records can be grouped by namespace or labels or a time period or, or many other definable dimensions, uh, including network egress traffic, if you want that. Uh, it does leverage uh, Google's BigQuery dataset system to track this usage over time and for your reporting needs, but a uh, nice, nice improvement to GKE. I'm, I'm curious to see how much of this gets back into open source Kubernetes, and you know that'd be a great story there as well. Yeah, chargeback and showback is just completely, all the ways we did chargeback and showback got broken with the shared cluster model. So this is awesome to be able to get back to tracking your costs and your usage. Um, I mean, we've done some stuff with BigQuery and I love how it integrates really easily with Google Sheets. So it's really easy to build a um, reporting on that like in hours, You're, you've got what you need. Well, the cool thing would be is that you can kind of see this being step one of being able to identify noisy tenants and noisy neighbors. And then if they can then add that to the to the resource handler to basically start killing containers that are running out of control or, or isolate them and move them to other systems. Um, that is one of the big pieces kind of missing from Kubernetes is really the ability to deal with um, noisy containers and then be motioning them to other, you know, other hosts that are less busy. That doesn't really exist today. But if this can start helping you get that solution to that that's more nimble than just monitoring it yourself. I think that's a nice win too. So I'm curious to see where this ends up going longer term, but this is a great first step. Yeah. And our final new news story, uh, Albertsons announced that they picked Azure to run their cloud workloads, uh, and they flat out said it was due to Amazon being a competitor. Uh, this is a three-year deal with Albertsons. They didn't disclose how much money it is, but um, Albertsons is a very large grocer here on the West Coast owning both Safeway and Vaughn's. Um, as well as Albertsons brand. This follows a deal that was announced uh, by Walgreens uh, about a week ago, for, which was a seven-year deal. Uh, and their CIO you know, basically said Amazon has forced them to increase their efforts to modernize its in-store experiences. And so this is a big, uh, big loss for Amazon and a big win for Azure. Yeah, it is for sure. I mean, if I was Microsoft, I'd definitely rather see the announcement say that we chose Azure because it's a more performant or more feature rich or more cost effective platform. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the best the best reason to make the decision. But it was interesting because you know maybe that's not the best headline for for Microsoft, but there's a bunch of other money quotes that they can pull into a lot of different things. You know the uh, you know the statement that you know their CIA would prefer vendors use providers other than use vendors that use providers other than AWS. So that means they're SaaS providers. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be Azure, though. But uh, you know, he said we're not. I would say, quote unquote, religious about it. But uh, you know, I've heard that story several times about you know, hey, if you want to get into this space, you can't uh, sell your SaaS offering on top of Amazon Web Services because the, the they won't buy it because they don't want to support Amazon in any way. So that's a that's a great money quote that they can pull in. Um, you know. Apparently, they're going to be building a joint cashierless system similar to Amazon Go, which would be a big competitive win for Microsoft. They could say, well, you know, Amazon has those cute little stores where you can buy, you know, little things, but we have an entire grocery store network that uses our technology, which is better. Um, there's definitely uh, some interesting things that could come out of this long term, but uh, it's definitely too early to say. But um, yeah, I agree. The headline could be a little bit better, but, you know, Motley Fool wrote it. So <laughs> that's uh, maybe their interpretation more so than the press release itself. Yeah, it's, it is. It is cool, though, looking at just thinking about, you know, all this these cloud providers. I mean, Amazon was not a cloud provider to start its um, its history. And 
Uh, Google wasn't a cloud provider to start its history and Microsoft wasn't. And so they've all got um, potential uh, competitors from their uh, original business that may or may not want to have them as a cloud provider. Be I'm curious to see if this um, if this type of activity, if it got big enough, if it would um, convince one of those companies to spin off their uh, infrastructure cloud business. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to see if it did. I, I you know, like, there's been talk in the past about Amazon spinning off AWS, and you know, this would be the big argument to do such a thing. But you know, they did. You know, I also noticed in this full article that you know, Amazon just announced Brooks Brothers and Under Armour both signed up with them as big, you know, as an all-in strategy on AWS. So, you know, it's not like this is preventing competitors from going to AWS uh, who compete with AWS the store, but. I'm sure it definitely is a it's a boardroom conversation that comes up a lot, and some companies are more more particular about this than others. Well, that's the new news. How about we move on to the lightning round, Peter? You got it. We are packed today with a lightning round, so we're going to try to make this super super quick. But uh, let's start with AWS Glue now supports uh, Python shell jobs. It smells good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just over here gluing my shells together. No big deal. Don't worry about me. Uh, AWS Elasticsearch service now supports a maximum cluster size of 200 nodes. That's up uh, from 100 nodes. So just getting closer and closer to that Splunk level of uh, size and cost. And cost, yep. You win that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, AWS SSM, the systems manager, is uh, now supports management of in guest and instance level configuration as opposed to previously just supporting in guest configuration so is this is this their attack on chef and on puppet and salts and i mean i get it i just i don't understand what their play is here i actually wish someone would really explain to us the ssm strategy because it made sense initially then they added a bunch of stuff to it that didn't make any sense then they added a roll-up tier to it that i don't quite understand and I'm sure that someone has a clear idea what this product's supposed to be when it's fully grown, but I, I, I'm missing the mark on this one. Yeah, just just another service that does what a few other ones do in a little different way. I think uh, Amazon lets them battle it out to see which one customers like the most. Three tools walk into the ring. One walks there out. There you go. Thank you. There's one. All right. AWS Public Datasets now available from UK Meteorological Office, Queensland Government, University of Penn. Um, build zero and others. So I was a little confused about why you need the UK meteorological data because isn't it always cloudy and rainy, Jonathan? <laughs> it, it, it is, but actually the, it's, the the weather is so unpredictable there because of the because of the Gulf Stream that um, the, the the UK Met Office has some of the best weather models in the world. Well, you know, but in Seattle, we you know the weather people would just say it would rain, and ninety percent of the time they were correct. So is it is it similar? I mean, yes, maybe it doesn't rain at noon, but it rains at two. I'm not sure it really matters at the end of the 24-hour period. If it rained once, you win. I moved from there to California for the sunshine, so that's all I can say about that. I think it's pretty cool that uh, another service by Amazon, because uh, I'm sure it's not free to host this data. Yeah, it's it's definitely just S3 data, but um, there's a lot of it in some of these data sets, especially like the NASA data sets that they also host um, are you know many, many terabytes in size, and that's really interesting. I'm actually really interested in this housing model from Build Zero, uh, partially due to my day job, but also because I just find it interesting, the housing market. So uh, I will. I think I might check that one out at some point. I, I feel like it's a bit of bait, though. It's like, oh, hey, look at these data 
sets. Look at all these massive data sets. Which services could you use to analyze these data sets? I wonder. <laughs> well, when you click on the examples in the press release, you know, it's like usage examples running queries on the model using Athena. Exactly. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> long, right. As long as you can get to them from BigQuery, it's fair, right? It, it is a funnel, a sales funnel. Yeah. Okay. Amazon ECS and ECR now support AWS private link. I got feelings about this. I like that they have private link. I like that they found a solution to not paying for NAT costs and not having to traverse the internet path because that's obviously an additional cost on the Amazon side. But I do not appreciate having to pay an hourly rate for endpoints, which are ultimately just Amazon services, which I'm already paying for. Well, they don't want to bundle it in because then you argue that you're paying for something you're not Ooh. using. So how do you want it one way or the other? Either way. Well... I was I, well. I'm paying extra to use it through Private Link. I don't know, but I'm not traversing the, their their internet uh, backbone to do so. So I would think it's a cost. I mean, they're using that. They're using all that NLV magic, though. That magic's not free. It's not. You know, you've reached a good compromise when everybody's equally <laughs> unhappy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like one cent an hour or something. It's not. But I think you pay for a. Do you still pay for a handling fee on that? I'm not sure. Um, it's still cheaper than that for sure. It's still better performing than than. Um, going out through the internet gateway but i want all i mean overall the issue with i mean of all the areas that amazon has had price cuts the one area they have really not ever had big price cuts in is in network bandwidth uh either inbound outbound cross-region inter-region um it's probably the one area that i really wish they would start you know cutting some costs in and i and i I'm glad they're doing dark magic in the network uh, and changing the TCP IP stack to do their bidding, but uh, I'd like you to do it for less money. Yeah, but I've got three regions and I've got several hundred accounts and I want to connect my private endpoints to eight, nine services. It, it adds up. It's quite it's quite a cost when you when you scale it out. But I mean, think about it too. If you know Amazon tells you, hey, uh, you need to be running in more than one availability zone in a region. And you're like, oh, yes, that makes sense because, you know, failure domains and all that. And then when you have your Mongo cluster running across three availability zones, for example, with a lot of traffic traversing those three clusters, uh, three nodes in the cluster, you're now paying for all that traffic to cross those three nodes. Uh, And so it's kind of an anti-pattern to what Amazon actually encourages you to do, which is to be in multi-availability zones and multi-regions. And the reality of that is that that SLA has a very large cost to it. And it's an area that Amazon has never reduced the yeah. cost of. And I'm not saying that it's not fair to charge me. It is totally fair to charge me for that. But, you know, hey, you've done 60 some odd price cuts. Maybe 61 could be you go. costs. All right. Lightning, let's keep with the lightning. We, we have a new SLA announcement, SLA for step functions. Woo! <laughs> And moving on, <laughs> a uh, wait, wait, wait. What was GA? I'm sorry. Which product? Uh, step functions. Uh, yeah, this we, we should invite a friend of ours to come tell us why we should care about step functions. But Beanstalk now supports net core .net core two dot two as opposed to two dot one or two o or <laughs> any other version of it. Uh, so the feature that the service that I never want to use and never want to support now supports something I never want to use as well. Great. Yeah. I chopped down that beanstalk. <laughs> AWS releases a new My Security Credentials feature, which if you read the article is they put a hyperlink to it uh, somewhere easier to find. Hey, bookmarks are cool. <laughs> I just use posting notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is always a fun one when you uh, you start getting into uh, restricting IAM users and you're like, okay, well, I want my user to be able to add MFA to their device, but then 
you had to ma- you had to give them this magical map of clicks they have to take in the console to get to the place where you can actually do it. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, it definitely solves a pain. So it's an but... IAM permissions pain point. Writing yes. the policy is cool. Hey, I, I could buy that. Next, AWS Code Build now lets you select images from the private Docker registry. Again, this is such a weird feature. Like, why is this a special thing? Is it because I needed to authenticate and you guys didn't think to build authentication into code build? And last week we talked about code build now supports publishing to S3. I, I, there's a lot of faces in code build uh, that apparently are very weak <laughs> that I did not know about because I don't use this service in any way. But um, I mean, I guess, yay. How about that? Presumably we could use um, Artifactory, a local Artifactory as a repository, though, which which does make things a little easier for us. Yeah, I just again, I, I I get that. I just would have thought that was already MVP because it doesn't. I assume it supported ECR, right? So if it supported ECR, why wouldn't it support something else? If you just needed to inject a certificate to it, because MVP, minimum viable product. <laughs> but you know, hey, it's probably PCI compliant. There you go. So. It probably <laughs> is. Um, AWS open sources code behind SageMaker Neo. Well, again, I, thought, I didn't think they open sourced anything. But uh, I mean, SageMaker is fantastic. And so I guess this is a fantastic announcement for people in the machine learning data science space. And you can now test your models much faster uh, either on-premise with SageMaker Neo or in Amazon's cloud. So I think it opens up some nice development paths. This is going to help train the robots that are going to get us in the end. There you go, Skynet. <laughs> Read replicas for Azure database for Postgres are now in preview. Hey, we reached uh, Amazon feature parity. Almost, yeah. <laughs> um, Azure Backup now supports PowerShell and ACLs for Azure files. I didn't. I support ACLs before. I, that, I can't understand that at all. That would be non-MVP. I would say that would that would be less than MVP if you didn't support oh, ACLs. It seems like PowerShell is Microsoft's solution to all automation. Why would you not have this built in? It's a weird yeah. one too. But it's good that we have it now. I guess we just didn't know we, we didn't have it. All right, and the I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I didn't use it before, not knowing that it didn't already have that feature. Because like restoring a bunch of data and then not having it restore the ACLs, that's just that's a non-starter. Yep. All right, and regulatory compliance dashboard in Azure Security Center is now available. This is like three for three. Like within since November now, this is every single provider has announced exactly the same feature. Except for this one uh, doesn't support anything beyond Azure CIS, PCI, and ISO, and SOC. So if you have HIPAA, or you have uh, FedRAMP, or you have anything else you actually care about uh, beyond the basics. I heard it only supported Jedi. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it's barely the bronze medal. Indeed. All right, Peter, who's the winner? Um, uh, I'm going to change. First off, so you know, I'm picking the winner from now on on my single favorite quote going off of last last week's... uh, for snore on, on and so I gotta go with sniffing glue. I gotta go with sniffing glue. <laughs> Another winner. Well I was gonna cut that out, but now I can't. So. <laughs> awesome. Or you do cut it out and then everyone's like, I'm confused. How did he what <laughs> Peter sniffs glue while he's doing it? Oh my God. <laughs> I just feel like this is I'm starting to feel this well, is stacked against keep me. Keep trying. Alright. I'm just waiting for the prize to arrive. Well, that's not coming until later in the year, so that's a long wait. Uh, Okay. For you, the listeners of the CloudPod podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook downloaded with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod. 
Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod for your free audiobook. All right, and uh, moving on to your cool tools, Jonathan. Right, well, this week we have two very, very cool tools. Uh, my favorite is most definitely the AWSWishlist.com. This is a much, much anticipated and requested feature. A publicly available uh, ranked wishlist of AWS features. You can submit feature requests via Twitter by um, using the hashtag AWSWishlist. And I submitted a couple yesterday. And uh, this this is great for visibility. I'm not sure the site works entirely well. I'm like trying to click through this thing to see, to see other people's submissions in Chrome. And I can't really see a lot, but it's working better yesterday, I guess. Um, yeah, anyway, so I guess this has been a, a feature request for a very long time to have some kind of visibility into other people's features so we could all plus one things and uh, try and sway the needle a bit with some of these features. I mean, they're not technically affiliated with AWS, so but, it's still a nice uh, nice way to go complain about it on on Twitter and then have someone track it for you. Well, not, I, not, technically, not technically affiliated, yet AWS support are sitting right there on that site responding to everybody's right. tweets. <laughs> So it may be uh, some loose affiliation there. Somebody somebody forced their hand, I think. On well, this. they're using pretty much the logo, so I got to imagine it was uh, basically approved by them. Yeah, or there's a yeah. cease and desist letter coming. <laughs> or that, or that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, make sure you use it while it's still there. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. And I, I, I wish uh, actually Abby Fuller, uh, who is in the container team, I believe, or Fargate or something with containers. Um, she's actually the one who maintains the uh, GitHub repo for containers. Um, she tweeted a week or so ago that you know she was looking for feedback, and my response to her was, "Well, I would really like visibility into all the plus ones and all of the uh, PFRs that I've asked for, uh, just so I know, like, hey, we've we think we'll do that never, or you know, maybe in the next three years. Like, that'd be that'd be okay. I'll, I'll take that level of granularity." The second and final one is the WTF dashboard for the terminal. This is uh, written in Go. It's a, a terminal which lets you define your own kind of widgets, you know, text-based. It's modular. There's plugins for Jira. There's plugins for everything. There's plugins for Jira, GitHub, the weather, if you really care about the weather. But you can maintain a really cool uh, little SRE-looking terminal and uh, and display real-time stats. Can I can I can I get what I, can I get a little uh, um, links browser in there too? Because I want to do everything in the terminal. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, it's, when we look at the thing, it kind of reminds you of like the '80s movies and things with the uh, you know the fast-moving Bloomberg terminal things scrolling across the screen. It's it's a little like that. You can customize the colors. Um, it does support a little interaction between the modules, so it's not just a static display. You can you can interact and drill down into you know, the Jira tickets or the pull requests, whatever you've got configured on the dashboard. Um, I'm thinking about using it to replace some of our. Um, signage here in the office so yeah definitely definitely cool get the link for That's it awesome get a link for it on the cloudpod.net yeah uh, you know i use a shell called hyper um which is a, basically a javascript compatible shell and so i can write my own little custom widgets and stuff in javascript and then i can have them present in here but i can see with this tool plus that uh, that I have quite a bit of power and flexibility here that I've never really had in my terminal before. That's I like this one a lot. Yeah, I'm going to use this looking for a good reason to polish my Go a little bit more, so I'm going to start writing some custom modules for it. Hmm. Always good to have a good, uh, good itch to scratch. Yep. yep. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Audible.com.
Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod.